Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Firing hundreds more rockets. A mass shooting aimed at elementary school children. Nuclear threats out of North Korea. At least 50 people were hit. Something just blew up. We are in search and rescue mode. The fuse of nuclear war is slowly burning. everybody. Welcome to Liquid. I'm Pastor Tim, and uh, we are in part two of this series called Signs. We're talking about Bible prophecy and the end times, and you probably noticed in the news this week a lot is happening, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, the nation of Iran has elected a new president. Very uh, exciting there. There has been rioting in Turkey, very apocalyptic pictures coming out of Turkey, and Russia sending weapons to Syria, which now is confirmed as use chemical weapons on their own People. So pieces are moving into place in a lot of ways, and today we're going to connect the dots and see what Bible prophecy has to say about a coming major crisis in the Middle East, okay? The reason we talk about the Middle East is that last week we learned in Genesis that Israel is the ancient starting point and will be the future staging ground of key events of Bible prophecy. And today, what we're going to look at is a prophecy found in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. So we put a Bible on your seat this morning so that you can open it up to Ezekiel chapter 37. It's on page 602. And as you turn there, what's kind of cool is this prophecy was talked about in the news uh, recently. Um, the prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, he was visiting Auschwitz this week. That's the Nazi death camp in Poland. And he was there to commemorate the, uh, the liberation, the anniversary of the liberation of, of many of the Jews who lost their lives there. Uh, and Netanyahu actually quoted from Ezekiel 37, in which the nation of Israel is called the Valley of Dry Bones. In other words, it was scattered, it was dead, it was out without hope. And that was really their condition um, after the Holocaust claim the lives of six million Jewish people. But Ezekiel predicts here that a day is going to come when the Jews would reassemble. They'd come together. The bones would come together and be covered in flesh and given a tendon. So it's going to grow strong as a nation now. And um, it's really interesting because right in this speech, Netanyahu quotes from this prophecy you hold in your hands. Listen what he said at Auschwitz. He said, after the Holocaust, the Jewish people rose from the ashes and destruction from a terrible pain that can never be healed. Armed with the Jewish spirit, the justice of man, and the vision of who? The prophets. We sprouted new branches and grew deep roots. Dry bones became covered with flesh. A spirit filled them, and they lived and stood on their own feet. And now watch this. He's going to quote from Ezekiel 37. If you look at verses 11 and 12, look what he says. As Ezekiel prophesied or predicted, then he said unto me, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are doomed. Now watch this, prophesy therefore and say to them, 
Thus said the Lord God, I'm going to open your graves and lift you out of your graves, O my people, and bring you to the land of Israel. This is stunning. Never before has a world leader stood on the global stage and said a major prophecy of the end times has come true in our lifetime. Can you imagine Obama doing this, right? That would be, I don't don't think so. Incredible signs of the times happening now, acknowledged by a secular politician. Ezekiel was written 2,500 years ago, and he said this is actually now coming true in our lifetime in Israel. If you remember, last week we saw in Genesis how the nation of Israel was blessed by God, right? Who promised Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. you make your name great. You'll be a blessing. They were chosen to be his treasured possession, Israel. And they were promised land as a sign of the covenant. God said, I'm going to give you this land. It's between the river of Egypt, the Nile area, to the Euphrates River. And that's actually a picture of of ancient Israel. You can see it's only a tiny speck today, the modern part of Israel, but that's actually what God said. That's the land I'm going to give to Abraham and all of his Jewish descendants. Unfortunately, Israel, as we know, Old Testament was disobedient, rebellious. They rebelled against the Lord and they were scattered. That's actually what it says here. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. Beginning in AD 70, Uh, The Jews were scattered to the four corners of the globe. They spent the next 1,900 years uh, suffering greatly, uh, the Holocaust, not the least of the suffering, until the prophecy of Ezekiel 36 came true. For I will take you out of the nations, and I will gather you from all these countries, and what? Bring you back into your own land. God said, I am going to bring you home as a sign of my faithfulness. And on May 14, 1948, the world saw it happen. The modern state of Israel was born with the Star of David as its symbol. This was three years after the horrors of Auschwitz. Six million Jews dying in Nazi death camps. And now today, in spite of all odds, six million Jews have returned home. They've emigrated back to the land of Israel, just as Ezekiel predicted 2,000 years ago. This is considered a super sign of Bible prophecy. In other words, never before has a decimated people retained their identity over over 20 decades and restored their nation in their ancient homeland. And this is what Netanyahu's talking about. He's saying this prophecy of Ezekiel 37, this has been fulfilled in our lifetime. That's the good news. But as Middle Eastern expert Joel Rosenberg asks, he says, the question for all Israelis and all people is now this. If the prophecies of Ezekiel 37 have come to pass in our lifetime, isn't it remotely possible that the prophecies of Ezekiel 38 and 39 will come true in our lifetime as well? And that's our question for today. What is the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39 that you hold in your hand? If you flip the page to Ezekiel 38, you're going to see the Bible predicts that after Israel is reestablished in their homeland, there will be a major war in the Middle East that will impact our entire globe. That's what we're going to look at today. It's called the War of Gog and Magog, where Israel faces off against the radical forces of radicalized Islam. It will involve major players such as Iran, Syria, and Russia, who were all in the news this past week. So understand today's message, it's really incredible, the time. It's going to have this kind of ripped-from-the-headlines feel to it. And this is heavy stuff. This is intense. If it's your first time, wow. (laughs) Buckle up, all right? Fasten your seatbelt, but also put on your thinking cap because I'm going to connect the dots. I'll be honest, I don't think most Americans pay attention to the Middle East until gas is $4 a gallon. 
Most of us, right? It's true, right? Most of us are like, ah, there's stuff going on over there. But we, we got our heads in the sand about a lot of this stuff. But I'm going to connect the dots for you today around this prophecy of the war of Gog and Magog. And those are funny names. Can we just say that real quick? Gog and Magog. Yeah, kind of, it sounds like World of Warcraft. I get it. Just follow with me. Um, this was written around 571 B.C., and um, it's important you understand this because it's, it's a type of literature that it's called prophetic literature. And I, I was an English teacher before I was a pastor. And I would always tell my students, I said, you have to understand what genre of literature something is to really interpret it. In other words, in the Bible, we have history, things that have factual accounts. We have the Gospels. Those are eyewitness testimonies. We have epistles. Those are letters that were written. We have law. That's, that's the legal code. This is prophecy, and what prophecy does is it uses a lot of like kind of strange names or unusual symbols to kind of telescope into the future and say, this is going to happen in this, in this region. It often doesn't typically care about dates or chronology, but it telescopes the near future and the far future all within a couple of verses. So as we interpret this today, level of humility, because we realize the stage is being set in our modern world, and that really history is history. It is his story. It's God's story. This is all part of God's redemptive plan for mankind to come in culmination in the last days in Jesus Christ. And what you're about to see is a major plot point in his story, one that Ezekiel predicts will happen as soon as Israel is restored as a nation and returns to her land. She will be attacked by a group of countries hostile towards her. And that's where we begin, Ezekiel 38. Look at verse 1. Here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and, this is interesting, put hooks in your jaws. In other words, I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to draw you into this with your whole army. Your horses, your horsemen fully armed, a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia. Cush and Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets, also Gomer with all its troops. Who are these people? Beth Togarma from the far north with all its troops, the many nations with you. Again, follow with me. I know like Gomer, Beth Togarma, it sounds like we're ordering sushi. I understand. Just kind of push through this language, all right? He says, get ready, be prepared, you and all the hordes gathered about you and take command of them. After many days, here's a prophecy, you will be called to arms. In future years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel. Who's that? Which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up, advancing like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. Did you understand all that? Did you get it? Just you can, uh, okay. Yeah, there's a lot there, right? In chapter 37, basically, Ezekiel's saying, once the, nation, once the Valley of Dry Bones, those, those are reassembled, the nation of Israel comes back into its homeland. Has that happened? Check. What's next on God's prophetic timeline? Israel's enemies will advance like a storm and attack it with overwhelming force. Now, what countries is Ezekiel talking about? Here's the key to prophecy. You always start with what you know, okay? And you start with what's identifiable in modern day's terms. And this is actually pretty easy because if you look in verse 5, you'll see he mentions Persia. Does anybody know what modern day country Persia is? Yeah. In 1935, Persia changed her name to Iran, okay? They made headlines this week electing a new president, Hassan 
uh, Hassan Rouhani. I want to make sure I get this right. This is kind of fun. It's like Hassan Rouhani succeeded Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who was a disciple of Ayatollah Ali Khomeini, this guy. Let me show you his picture. This is the actual supreme leader of Iran. Although they have a president, this is the guy who calls the shots. That's Ayatollah Khomeini. And he is, a, he is an Islamic uh, imam. And the reality is he calls all the shots. Although they will say, if you watch like on CNN, they'll be like, they elected a moderate. There are six guys who he pre-approved that will go along with his nuclear ambitions and all of that out of 600. He said, you can vote for any of these six. And so they elected one yesterday. And it's very significant because Khomeini is the guy who says, this cancerous tumor, Israel, should be removed from the region. In other words, he is a sworn enemy of Israel. He's the guy who says anyone who recognizes Israel will burn in the Islamic nation's fury. And this is very significant, guys. I kind of want to just give you a little quick primer in radical Islamic eschatology. Eschatology means kind of what they think is going to happen in the last days. Because even though we're a Christian church, you got to understand Islam because it's the world's fastest growing religion. And most of the nations mentioned here in Israel, uh, in Ezekiel, are radical Islamic states. To do this, let me show you a little clip from the United Nations. This is in New York City when the former Iranian president visited. He opened his address to the United Nations with a public prayer. Listen to what he says. In the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful, all praise be to Allah, the Lord of the universe, and peace and blessing be upon our master and prophet Muhammad and his pure household and his noble companions. O God, hasten the arrival of Imam al-Mahdi and grant him good health and victory and make us his followers and those who attest to his rightfulness. After that opening prayer, the entire American, Israeli, and British delegation got up and walked out of the United Nations in protest. Why? Thousands of Muslims across the world begin their daily prayer with these words, in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful, all praise to Allah, the Lord of the universe. The word Islam literally means submission, so a Muslim is somebody who submits to God, and there are about 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. That's about a quarter of the world's population, so one in four people in the world. But it's the predominant religion of the Middle East, North Africa, and major parts of Asia. But what Ahmadinejad did is he also prayed this. He said, peace and blessing be upon our master and prophet Muhammad and his pure household. The founder of Islam is Muhammad. He was born in Mecca. That's modern-day Saudi Arabia. In what year? Ezekiel was written in 571 AD. Muhammad was born in 570, about a year after Ezekiel's prophecy. And at the age of 40, while meditating in a cage, cave, <laughs> cave, he received a divine revelation. And he put those revelations in a holy book, not called the Bible, but the what? The Quran, yeah. At the time, there were actually hundreds of deities in the Arabic pantheon, but the reality is he chose Allah to be the one true God. And after Muhammad died, Islam splintered into two denominations. It's kind of like the Baptists today, all right? About, <laughs> not About 90% of the Islamic world are Sunni Muslims, and the other 10% are Shiite Muslims. And Ayatollah Khomeini and Rahani and Ahmadinejad are Shiite, which is significant. Because it's one thing for a Muslim to begin his address with a basic prayer to his God, but then he says, this is it, O oh God, hasten the arrival of who? Imam al-Mahdi, and grant him victory, and make us his followers, and those who attest to his righteousness. What do Shiite Muslims believe about the end times? 
they believe that there's an individual known as Imam al-Mahdi, which translates to the Messiah, who is coming back one day to be revealed as the world's savior. And the sign of his coming will be victory. Victory in what? Victory in a global war against Jews, Christians, and other infidels who will not bow their knee before Allah. It's called jihad. And that's why he stood before the United Nations and prayed to the General Assembly, make us his followers and those who attest to his righteousness. You understand why Israel, the U.S., and Britain stormed out. The leaders of Iran are driven by the belief that launching a war to annihilate Israel will bring about the return of the Islamic Messiah. This is sobering stuff. And I, just, I, I need to clarify this for you because this is not meant to stereotype and smear all Muslim people. The Iranian regime's beliefs, they are not widely held by the vast majority of Muslims in the world. 90% of Muslims are Sunni. These guys are Shiite. Most, people, most of them believe in the peaceful practice of their faith. It's critical you make that distinction. Do not fall for sweeping stereotypes and start looking at all Muslim people with the stink eye. It would be racist and ignorant. But Iran's leadership represents a radical form of Shiite fascism, which is toxic. It is virulent and disturbing to civilized ears, especially those of actually many peaceful Muslims, because of Iran's determination to make a nuclear weapon. Iran has been at this since about the mid-80s, but over the last 18 months, they have sped up the enrichment of weapons-grade uranium in their quest to go nuclear. The New York Times reported it this way. They said, Iran is now shielding its nuclear efforts in a maze of tunnels underground that are impenetrable to American bombers and Israeli bombers. They don't want what happened in Iraq to happen in Iran, so they're going underground. And Israeli intelligence officials now say they're not only very close to getting a nuclear weapon, but will have soon the capacity to produce 30 bombs a year. Many people are saying it's a question of the Iranian bomb, whether they'll have it or not. No, said Israeli intelligence minister, we are speaking about an Iranian arsenal. And suddenly, you and I see all the ingredients for a clash of civilizations. Radical zealots with a hatred for Israel and the capacity for weapons of mass destruction. All of this driven by their own vision of the end times. President Obama flew to Israel this past spring to pledge public support to Israel, but his strategy of sanctions towards Iran is being called into question. President Obama's first trip to Israel as commander-in-chief came with unequivocal pledges to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. And I will repeat, all options are on the table. We will do what is necessary to prevent Iran from getting the world's worst weapons. The U.S. believes Iran is at least one year away from producing a nuclear bomb. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu agreed. But we do have a common assessment on these schedules, on intelligence, uh, we share that intelligence, and we don't have uh, any, uh, any argument about it. That creates more time for diplomacy and for Iran to reconsider. I think there is time to resolve this issue diplomatically. The question is, will Iranian leadership seize that opportunity? Will they walk through that door? The two leaders stood in front of an Israeli missile intercepting system, part of a U.S.-funded project known as Iron Dome, and capable of intercepting rockets launched by Hamas from the Palestinian territories. But the system would be no match for a nuclear-armed ballistic missile from Iran. The problem with a strategy of sanctions and diplomacy is that it fundamentally misunderstands the prophetic nature of this growing conflict. 
the leaders of Iran, whether it's Khomeini, Ahmadinejad, or Rouhani, these men are not atheistic dictators who don't believe in God. They have a very specific belief in God, and they believe God is calling them to bring in the Muslim Messiah by unleashing global carnage and chaos in the world. They see their God-given role as attacking Israel, confronting the West, so that global chaos will ensue, because it's thought that El Mahdi will only come when the world is plunged into utter carnage and chaos. So I want you to get this. The threat of sanctions or diplomacy, even bombing Iran, is not a deterrent to them. It is an accelerant, because instability will hasten their savior. Confrontation with Israel and its destruction is the goal. They're not worried about bringing peace on earth. They have 72 virgins waiting for them in the afterlife, okay? How do you deter someone who is convinced that it's their destiny to annihilate Judeo-Christian civilization, which Israel and America represent? This is the threat of Iran. Again, vast majority of Muslims do not share this radical ideology. They do not support their apocalyptic ambitions. They just want their food prices to come down. That's why you're seeing all of this like unrest right now in these Muslim nations. Moderates are fed up with this. They want to live in peace. But never before has such a radical regime had the power to deliver on their end times agenda. But Netanyahu is convinced. This Wednesday, he told the Associated Press, this is a regime that is building nuclear weapons with the express purpose to annihilate Israel's 6 million Jews. We will not allow this to happen. We will never allow another Holocaust. And here we sit with Ezekiel 38, which predicts that Iran or Persia will be one of the key countries to strike Israel in the major war that's coming in the Middle East. Ezekiel says that Iran will not be alone. If you look in verse 5, you'll see he's, he references Kush, which is actually modern-day Sudan, and Put, that's modern-day Libya. Most people think Gomer refers to modern-day Turkey, which made news, of course, all the rioting happening right now. We've seen all these countries come in line with the Arab Spring. But Ezekiel's basically saying, in the last days, there will be a coalition of Islamic countries who come together to attack Israel. Are you tracking with this? Is this making sense to you? Again, we see bits and pieces of this go bias in the news, but we have no idea how it fits into the whole picture. We are interpreting the news through the lens of prophecy. We're looking at the darkness of the world in the light of Scripture. And this is the twist. Ezekiel predicts that Iran will have a powerful backer in its battle against Israel. It opens with these words, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog. And the question is, who is Gog? Gog is not a name. It's not like we're waiting for Matt Gog to show up on the scene, like that's him. No. Gog is a title, like czar or pharaoh or president. So it's not identifying a name, but actually someone who's going to be a ruler over this region of Magog. Well, where is Magog? Look at the clue in verse 15. It says, out of the remote parts of the north you will come. What is the northernmost area of Israel above it? What country? Russia. And Magog is the region on the map where all those Stan countries exist. Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, where Borat lives. (laughs) 20-somethings, pay pay attention, come on, track with me. So you're like, oh, what's that? Okay. Look, you're going to see this, okay? You can see the linguistic connection. The prince of Rosh or Russia, who oversees Meshach, which is Moscow. You see the linguistic connections here. There are other scholars who believe that's referred to the most, most of the modern uh, area of modern-day Turkey and all the former satellite states of the Soviet Union. But there's little doubt here who Ezekiel is referring to with the countries to the north of Israel. Now, who is Gog over the land of Magog? 
Let me show you his picture. I must break you. No, this is not Russia's strongman, okay, Rocky fans? Right now, Russia is led by President Vladimir Putin, who served eight years as Russian president. Then he was prime minister for four years and rewrote the laws so that he could have a third term as Russian president, and now he will be president for the next six years, okay? So you're going on about three decades. And under Putin's leadership, Russia has rolled back a lot of the democratic reforms that came when communism collapsed in the 90s. Putin has jailed journalists, political opponents, believing that a new Russia has to challenge the West. He's a former head of the KGB, and a lot of people fear that his determination is to restore Russia to global superpower status by leveraging arms and oil in the Middle East. Time magazine featured uh, Putin on the cover in the article, A Czar is Born, and they wrote, he is emerging as an elected emperor who many people compare to Peter the Great. Now just listen, I'm not saying Putin is God. Don't go tweeting that, all right? Listen, what I'm saying is if you connect the dots between Ezekiel's prophecy with modern headlines, you see how the table is being set for this major confrontation with Israel. I mean, if you just take the two key nations that Ezekiel mentions here, Russia and Iran, up until a decade ago, most people would laugh at the idea of Iran and Russia joining forces. Historically, both countries have hated each other. But prophecy makes strange bedfellows. In 2007, Putin personally visited Iran to announce a billion-dollar alliance to supply them with weapons to the Islamic nation. I'll let Wolf Blitzer of CNN tell you the full details. The Iranian president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, getting a powerful new ally in a standoff with the West. Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, is now backing Iran's right to nuclear power and warning the rest of the world not to use military action against Iran. Our Middle East correspondent, Anish Rahman, is watching this story. Anish? Well, Vladimir Putin did not mince words today, voicing strong support for Iran. They spent the day side by side, two presidents challenging the West by affirming Iran's right to nuclear power. When it comes to the nuclear issue, the Iranians are cooperating with Russian nuclear agencies to reach a peaceful objective. And all the countries involved have expressed their idea that peaceful nuclear activities must be allowed. Russia is, of course, a veto member of the same UN Security Council looking to sanction Iran again over its year-long defiance of a UN deadline to stop enriching uranium. The chances of that now seem slim. And with a close to $1 billion deal in place for Moscow to build Iran's first nuclear power plant, the Russian president warned the world against attacking the Islamic Republic, vowing that no Caspian Sea country would be used to hit another. By any measure, this was a historic trip, the first one since 1943 of a Kremlin leader. Back then, it was Joseph Stalin sitting side by side with U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, three allies eager to end World War II. This time, a much different message from Vladimir Putin, one of support for Iran and, in turn, one of great concern for the West. Wolf? Anish Rahman reporting for us. Uh, the summit in Tehran, by the way, consists of the five nations bordering the landlocked Caspian Sea. Uh, there's Iran, along with Russia, and three other former Soviet republics, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, and Turkmenistan. Strategically vital, the Caspian is one of the world's richest oil regions. 2,500 years ago, this alliance was predicted. Persia and Rosh, Iran and Russia, in our lifetime, 
It's coming true before our eyes. I want you to imagine the military power of Russia backing the forces of a nuclear Iran. You talk about a match made in hell. Russia not only helped build Iran's first nuclear reactor, they've contracted to build 20 more. Russia has now trained over 1,000 nuclear scientists in Russia and sent them to Iran. And this week on Tuesday, Tuesday, Putin announced that Iran had a right to peaceful nuclear reactors and shouldn't be sanctioned whatsoever. They should all be lifted. And then the next day on Wednesday, Putin moved 16 warships into the Mediterranean Sea for the first time since the Soviet era. Why is this significant? Because he is steadily escalating Russian military involvement in the Middle East. He's supplying arms to Syria, bolstering alliances with Iran and Lebanon and Hezbollah. Why? Russia is desperate to counterbalance U.S. power in the region. And so Putin is leveraging Russia's nuclear know-how to make partners of Muslim nations. Now, just pause here. Am I suggesting to you that Iran and Russia are going to be the first to fire the first shot and trigger the war of Gog and Magog, as predicted here in Ezekiel 38? Maybe, maybe not. But one thing is for certain. They are setting the table for it. Reminds me of that scene in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf looks out at the storm clouds in the distance and he says, the board is set. Pieces are moving. We come to it at last, the last great battle of our time. You see how prophecy works? Are you seeing this? how history is his story. We get a God's eye view of the world as we read it in light of his word. Listen to how Ezekiel predicts that Russia will be drawn in. This is such an interesting verse. I'll turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army. The image is like a fish with a hook in its gills being reeled in. And it's this picture of how Russia may eventually be drawn in to Iran's showdown with Israel. And that's not hard to imagine. Last September, Netanyahu was here in New York City at the United Nations, and he drew a clear red line, and he said it must not be crossed, and Iran must not be allowed to gain a nuclear weapon. He doesn't believe it's years away. He believes it's months away from gaining the bomb. And Israel is willing to bomb Iran preemptively. They've shown they're willing to do it. They bombed an Iraqi nuclear reactor in 1981. If Israel bombed Iran preemptively, Russia would instantly back Iran's right to retaliate. And the question for us is, would America step up to defend our ally, Israel? For 30 years, that was unquestioned. We would always stand by Israel. How about now? First off, the Obama administration, while publicly offering support for Israel, far prefers diplomacy and sanctions over military action. It has not been effective. And if war breaks out, it will certainly not be effective. And can we just be honest for a minute? Our nation doesn't have the stomach for another major war in the Middle East. After the last 10 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, there is simply not the public will to sacrifice lives and send troops and trigger spending like that again. And everybody agrees, if Israel preemptively attacks Iran or any Arab state, there will be an international outcry, especially among Muslim nations. In that case, the Obama administration will be even more reluctant to rush to Israel's defense for for inflaming anti-U.S. Arab sentiment. And if that's the case, guess what? Israel will stand all alone exactly as Ezekiel predicts she will. I want you to imagine this. A tiny nation of six million immigrants surrounded by a sea of 300 million enemies. The battle, according to Ezekiel, will be very lopsided. It says in verses 15 and 16, you'll come from a place in the far north, you, many nations with you, all riding on their horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. Just to give you an idea of how lopsided a war with Russia, Iran would be, just compare these two vital statistics. Right now, Israel has about 168,000 troops on call. 
Russia, Iran, about one and a half million on active duty. Israel is the size of New Jersey, 7.2 million square miles. Ezekiel predicts that not one nation, including America, will come to the aid of Israel. She will stand completely alone when attacked by Gog and Magog. And yet these are precisely the kind of odds that God loves. Because this isn't just history, folks. This is his story. And his story has a divine purpose behind this conflict. I know this is freaking some of you out. I see it on your faces. You're like, what is happening? I should have wore Depends diapers today. This is like a little bit crazy, right? I understand. I understand. Listen, in verse 16, God reveals his purpose to this. He says, in days to come, I will bring you against my land so that what? Let's say it together. The nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. In other words, this scary scenario has a sacred purpose. It is the way that God has chosen to reveal his glory to the nations as he comes to the rescue of his treasured possession, Israel. That's the hope in all this, guys, that God's love for his people, it's unconditional. It's not about depending on their faithfulness to him. God is faithful to his own promises, to his prophecies, his word. And when his chosen people find themselves with their backs to the wall, you remember the Red Sea? God loves to show himself strong on their behalf. You ever notice how he does that in the lives of his children? He's probably done that in your life. When he puts you in an impossible situation, you feel overwhelmed. You're surrounded on every side. Why does he do that? We come to limitations of our own strength, and then we realize we have to depend on God to rescue with power. And when he does, only he can actually get the credit. And that's exactly what Ezekiel predicts will happen here. Are you ready for a comeback? I'm going to breeze through these. Strap on your seatbelt. It says this, is what will happen in that day when Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. God gets hot. I know we talk a lot about grace and love, and that is absolutely affection, the father heart of God. But the other side of it is justice and wrath. When a protective father has his child threatened or bullied, he burns with anger at the nations trying to annihilate his treasured possession. And when God comes to a fight, he doesn't, he doesn't bring bullets and bombs to the battle. Ezekiel predicts he will use four unconventional weapons to win this war. First one in verse 19, it says, In my zeal, in my fiery wrath, I declare that at that time there shall be what? A great earthquake in the land of Israel. All people on the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned. The cliffs will crumble and every wall will fall to the ground. So a mighty earthquake will shake the Middle East. We have had some big ones in Indonesia and Japan that have triggered tsunamis and nuclear meltdowns. This will dwarf that. It'll be like Haiti times 10. These are contractions, guys. You see this? Over the last four years, the contractions are getting closer and closer and closer. And convulsion of the earth will lead to confusion of the troops. Verse 21 talks about friendly fire. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I want you to imagine all these nations speaking different languages, descending on Israel, and this earthquake happens, triggering panic and chaos as we've seen in the last few years. And in confusion, it says the armies will actually turn on one another. Does that sound improbable to you? 
There's a historical precedent in the book of Judges where a band of 300 Israelites led by Gideon faced down 150,000 Midianites who God makes turn their swords on each other. Today, we call that friendly fire. The third weapon in verse 22 is actually biological warfare. God says, I will execute judgment upon him with what? Plague and bloodshed. The mass carnage will cause an outbreak of disease. It's just like in Haiti, right? Ten days later, cholera broke out infecting enemy troops, rendering them powerless against Israel. And finally, God will send an air assault like nothing we've ever seen. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur on him and his troops and on the many nations with him. Ezekiel says this will not be a fair fight. It is going to be lopsided. Because no matter how wicked our man's plans and military might, they are no match for the power of the living God. Amen? As one commentary put it, every force of nature, is a servant of the living God. And in a moment, can be made a soldier armed to the teeth. Men are slowly discovering that God's forces stored in nature are mightier than the brawn of the human arm. And I get it. You may be sitting here today like, man, this is crazy. You know, Pastor Tim, stop drinking Red Bull. This is like nuts, man. This is like, you're freaking me out. But who would have predicted the tsunami that triggered a nuclear meltdown in Japan? How about the tsunami that wiped a quarter of a million people off the map in Indonesia in 20 minutes? A single wave gone from the map. Sobering stuff. You read Ezekiel 39 this week, you'll see the aftermath. But guys, this is the start. This is the beginning of God's redemptive plan of his people Israel that began in Genesis and will take us through to Revelation. And honestly, it is one of the compelling reasons that we as a nation are privileged to stand and support the nation of Israel. Amen? We don't know when all this will occur. We don't know. Some scholars believe this could happen in our lifetime as we see these new alliances emerging. Others say it will happen after the rapture of the church. Once believers in Christ are actually removed from this earth, that we will watch the war of Gog and Magog from the windows of heaven. I hope that's the case. We'll discuss this next week, the rapture the hope we actually have as believers in Jesus Christ. But one thing is certain, the table is being set as never before. History is his story. And what's happening in our world has been predicted in God's word, and it's trying to tell us something. It's trying to tell you something. There's a purpose behind all this turmoil, folks. In verse 23, God says, I'll show my greatness, my holiness. I'll make myself known in the sight of many nations. God intends to use this judgment to reveal his power to all the nations of the world. How do you think the watching world will respond when they watch this battle unfold on CNN in high def? Israel surrounded on every side, miraculously delivered by the hand of the living God. My favorite verse is the last one in Ezekiel 30. It says, let's read this together. Then they will know that I am the Lord. They will know. There are right now thousands, millions of Jews living in Israel who believe the God of the Bible has forgotten them, if he ever existed at all. But when they are surrounded on every side and miraculously delivered in this way, there will probably be an unprecedented spiritual revival, an awakening like we have never seen before. I imagine temples filled to overflowing as people come to hear about God's rescue plan through his son, Jesus Christ. How do you think Muslim nations will react? Is it possible that God will use this event to actually ignite a global spiritual awakening that jumps those political and ethnic divides and Jews and Muslims and Christians and believers and skeptics and backsliders are actually convicted 
and sobered and wake up, get their head out of the ground, and draw millions into the family of God before the rapture of his church. Would that not be like God's heart? Let me be clear about this. I believe the return of Jesus Christ could occur at any moment. I would not be surprised in any way if it occurred before the events of Ezekiel 38 come to pass. The question for you is, would you be ready for that? Have you put a whole heart commitment to Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because when you hear stuff like that, you can either hear this and it makes you fearful about the future. But if you actually have a secure faith in your heart, you know that actually Christ was God's rescue plan for you to save you from the coming wrath. You can actually have faith because you know how this is going to work out. You know how it ends. You know actually where you're going. And no matter what happens, Christ is with you. Amen? That's the hope we have as people who submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ. And so I'm asking you today, have you done that? I'm not trying to appeal to you on the basis of fear because I realize talk of the end times can be scary. But you remember what Jesus said. He said, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Don't be afraid. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. There's time. There's going to be famines and earthquakes and tragedy. We see that today, but remember Jesus said, all these are the beginning of what? Birth pains. The earth is having contractions. They're getting closer and closer and closer together, and it's about to give birth to something new. It's called the kingdom of God. And these are the signs that the return of Jesus Christ is closer than ever. Are you ready? Have you been born again? It makes all the difference, guys, in your perspective of this stuff. If you go to a hospital and you hear someone screaming, it's scary until you realize they're in the maternity ward. Then you're filled with joy. If it's a cancer department, it's scary. If it's a maternity ward, totally different perspective. Context is decisive. And Jesus says, this is about the birth, not death of the world. I died so you could be born again into my family and secure your home in heaven. Amen? Have you done that? If you haven't done that, man, you just got to make that right with God. What are you waiting for? God says, today's a day of salvation for you. You don't have to wait. You don't have to be white knuckle it. I can give you peace no matter what happens in the world or in your life. So I want to invite you to do that right now. If you're here today and you have never given your life a whole heart commitment to Jesus Christ, I'm going to challenge you to do that right now. Because I think there are people here today who are like, this is your day of salvation. You're like, I, I, I don't know where I'm going. I can't be sure. But this is a moment to settle that. So I'm going to ask this, all our campuses, could we just bow our heads where we are? Let's just bow our heads. Everyone bow our heads. And I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite specific people who may want to give their life to Jesus Christ right now to make that decision clear and sure. Father, we thank you for this prophecy in Ezekiel, God. It's sobering. Lord, it's jarring. I feel woken up, God, from my slumber. So many of us, God, we just repent right now because we sleepwalk through life, ignorant of you in your ways, loving hearing about the, the grace of God, but not too much about the justice and the wrath we deserve. And so, Father, I thank you for Jesus Christ, who was sacrificed on the cross, received all of the judgment that we deserved. And now, Lord, we are free, we are forgiven, and we are set forever in the family of God. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Father God. With all our heads bowed right now, you want to make that decision to secure your home in heaven. You know that you will be saved because you're going to ask God right now into your life and give your life. With all heads bowed, would you just raise your hand so I can point to you? I just want to make eye contact. Praise God for you. God bless you, sir, in the back. God bless you.
Awesome. Just raise your hand right now. Praise God for you. A half dozen people over here entering the family of God. Here's what it means to have a relationship with God. If you want to just pray in your heart, maybe you didn't even raise your hand. Raise your hand if you haven't. You can just pray in your heart. God, I admit I'm a sinner and I need you. And today I turn from my sin and I give my life to Jesus Christ. I believe he died for me and was raised to life. And now I ask him to come live in my heart so that I will be born again. I commit my life to follow you all of my days. Father, I pray right now for the men and women at all of our campuses who are giving their lives to Christ. They're entering, Father, your protective arms. I pray right now that you'll confirm that with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for Israel. We pray for the Middle East. We pray for our country, America, and our church that we would not be asleep, but we would be awake and more sober than ever as we wait for your kingdom to come. We ask all glory to go to Jesus. Everybody said together, amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.